Well, good morning. Thank you for having me here again. Although I don't know if that was all of you asking for me again or Dave just decided to ask. So maybe you're gonna go and complain to him afterwards. But it's been a few months since I've been up here and I know some of you know me and some of you don't know me very well. So I'm Josh Didier. We've been here in Madison and at City on a Hill for about a year. Uh, but I came up to Madison to serve in a campus ministry. We recently went through a name change, so we were formerly His House, which some of you may know. Um, we are now Campus Collective Christian Ministries. We weren't taken over by anybody or anything. We just felt it was time for a little bit of a change. And um, the mission and direction for our ministry has remained the same, but we have adopted a new name in order to better connect with our students. So, so I work with Campus Collective and... Um, I used to serve in a church down in Missouri in a small farming community uh, called Cahoka. If you've never heard of it, that's fine. We had never heard of it before we moved there either. But kind of a funny note, we had A.J. Reynolds here preaching last week, and he pastors a church in Monmouth. That's only about an hour and a half from where I was in Cahoka. We drove through Monmouth every time we came to see family in Northern Illinois, and we would pass through there. So our family is kind of familiar with that area and where he's come from. And another fun fact, Pastor Dave, for some reason, just gave you two Bears fans in a row, back to back. So I don't know, maybe some of you are going to go and complain to him about that. But anyway, and to go along with that, I grew up in McHenry, Illinois, just over the border, not too far away from here. Um, so some of you know that area up north of Chicago in those northern suburbs. And the former Packers, now Bears tight end, Robert Tunyon, was from McHenry also. My wife's cousin is one of his best friends. They are close. He went and signed his contract with the Bears and then left from the Bears facilities to go hang out with cousin Jeff. So we've got some like family connections to this guy who's played for now both the Bears and Packers. So that's been kind of a fun little quirk and a fun name to drop when we're sharing with people. But anyway, I'm excited to continue on in our series through Hebrews this week. And this message is one that is interesting for me as I began studying for it. I was like, this is going to start off kind of fire and brimstone, I feel like, which is not usually my style. But I also think it's important that as our text addresses the wrath and the judgment of God, that we don't shy away from that. Because I think if we lean too far to one extreme, if we lean into the love of God and forget that this is also a God who punishes sin, who is going to take our sin seriously, who is going to pour out his wrath on sin, if we ignore that, then I think we distort the image of who God really is. I remember telling youth group kids when I was serving as a volunteer youth leader that God's love is in all butterflies and unicorns. Like he, he is a God who hates sin. We can't just wash over that part and ignore it because I think then we lose sight of who God is. Now with that, I also wanna tell you as I start off this message, I don't wanna lean so far into the idea of God's wrath that we lose sight of the fact that he is also a loving God and a God who forgives sin. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we dive into this passage, because I know that as we get into God's wrath and his judgment on sin, it can become very heavy and can really drag us down. And I don't want us to be so weighed down by that, that we lose sight of the end of this message, which is more uplifting and reminds us of the great faithfulness of our God. So we will be starting off here in, the first, in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll continue through the end of the chapter today. But let's start with just those first few verses, verses 26 through 31. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The first thing I want to remind you of today is there are consequences for rejecting Jesus as our savior. Now, I want to focus on a couple of things. One, this message I think applies to us across a spectrum of our journey of faith. Whether you're here today and you've never really called Jesus your savior, you've never trusted him, this is important for you. If you've kind of been following and experimenting with the church, maybe even would consider yourself a Christian, but are realizing I've never really trusted Jesus. This has just been about adopting a culture that I like or connecting with people and I wanna be part of their community, but it's never really been about Jesus, then this message is important for you. But I also want those of you who have said, Jesus is my savior, I trust him, I'm following him. I want you to know that this is for you as well. Because this passage that we're sharing today wasn't written primarily to non-believers. Throughout this book of Hebrews, we've seen that this has been written primarily to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this warning, although it applies to those who are outside of the faith at this time, they're not yet brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're here today, this is for you. But if you'd say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't want you to ignore this part of God's judgment because he is actually speaking to primarily those who have already accepted Christ. Which is why I don't think primarily he's talking about judgment in hell at this point, although that's addressed frequently in scripture. I think primarily what he's addressing is there is going to be a judgment that follows a defecting from the faith. If you say like, yes, I'm gonna follow Jesus. And then later you're like, you know what? I don't want to anymore. I'm turning my back. I'm walking my own way. There are going to be consequences for rejecting Jesus in that way as well. First, why are there the consequences for rejecting Jesus? Because you are deliberately rejecting the only means of salvation. How do we think we could get away with saying, Jesus is my savior, he's the one, I bow down to him as my king. And then we say, you know what? I don't really want anything to do with you. I want people to think I'm one of your followers, but in reality, I wanna do my thing my way and I don't really care what you want. The author of Hebrews here is reminding us that there are consequences for rejecting Jesus. That if we turn our back on him, we are going to feel the weight of that. There is a judgment. There is wrath that we are going to feel in our life. If for no other reason than the fact that we are trying to do this life without the power of Jesus alongside of us. If for no other reason than we have rejected the one way that he's given us. And we start to feel the weight of that and the power in our lives saying, you know you had it and you let go. John 14, six is a familiar verse for many of us. Jesus says in this passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we choose to live opposed to Jesus, the only thing that is left for us is a terrifying expectation of judgment, according to verse 27. Right before that, it says, after receiving the knowledge of truth, remember this is implying like you've already heard this message. 
In fact, most likely speaking, you're saying, you've already accepted this message. You know Jesus is your savior. But then he finishes verse 26 saying, if you reject that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, I think this can be confusing sometimes. And this is one of those passages where we're tempted to say, does this mean our salvation can be stripped away from us? And I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that's what he's getting at here. I don't think he's saying that that sacrifice is going to be stripped away from you, but instead what he's implying is you have chosen to not make use of the sacrifice that was here for you. If you decide I don't wanna follow Jesus because that sacrifice on the cross is too brutal, I have a hard time getting over that. I don't know why God would have to do that to his son. He's saying, you're not gonna get a better one. You're not gonna get anything cleaner. You're not gonna get the butterflies and unicorns version. You're not gonna get a new savior who comes in and says, you know what? I know you didn't really like the way I did it last time. You didn't agree with some of what Jesus called you to do. So I'm gonna give you something that's maybe a baby step, something a little simpler, something a little cuter, something you're not scared to talk to your friends and family about. He's saying there isn't gonna be another option. This was it. Jesus was the one. I know Dave has been sharing with us in recent weeks as we've gone through Hebrews, this idea that Jesus is the better sacrifice. Because as we've read in Hebrews, the the sacrifices of lambs and goats could never really take away our sin. It was like a placeholder. It pointed to what Jesus was going to do. It prepared us for this sacrifice. And so this is written to remind us that if you're tempted to go back and say, you know what, the sacrifice of Jesus, that's a little heavy. I really want to continually offer some sort of sacrifice on my own. I think I, think I need to do something else on top of that. I think I need something different. I think I need something easier to accept. He's saying, I'm going to tell you right now, there isn't going to be another one. You can't go back to the old sacrifices. God's not going to offer a different one for you. There are consequences for rejecting Jesus because you have decided to push aside the one and only sacrifice that would be offered for you. Sometimes we hear people say things like, I couldn't follow a God who would punish people forever, who would pour out his wrath on someone who sinned. And yet I think often we lose sight of the fact that God has given us a way to be free from that. He provided his son, he provided placeholders before his son so that his people could see what was necessary for sin and they could trust in God's faithfulness then looking forward to him doing something even better. And now we look back on that sacrifice and have that opportunity to say, Lord, I've sinned, I need you. And yet too often we're tempted to say, you know what? I don't really like that God's gonna punish sin. So I don't wanna follow him. I think it's easy to do that and forget that what that means is we're saying there is a means to be saved and we're just going to walk away from it. I've heard a joke that's been told many times to kind of illustrate this point. And so it may be familiar to some of you, but that there was a man whose, whose town was being flooded and he was driven up to the roof trying to get away from the floodwaters and he's sitting on the roof and he's praying and a man comes by in a rowboat and says, hey, do you need a ride? Like, do you need to get out of here? And he says, no, no, I've been praying. God's gonna save me. He says, okay, well, I, I got to get going. And so he moves on. And then somebody else comes by in a bigger like motorboat and they pull up and they're like, 
do you need a ride? I can get you out of here. And he said, no, no, I'm gonna be fine. God's gonna save me. And then as the waters are rising, somebody comes down in a helicopter and they're like, we're picking up the last of the survivors. Do you need a ride? We can take you out of here. And he says, no, no, don't worry. I'll be fine. God's gonna save me. And then the waters rise up too high and he drowns and he's standing before God. And he's like, I was praying. Why didn't you help me? He's like, I sent you two boats and a helicopter and you said no to all of them. I think sometimes we forget that to reject Jesus is like doing that before God. It's like saying, Lord, I need you to save me. And he said, I sent you my son. And you said, well, maybe not that. Could there be a way where I can still do things my way? Could there be a way that's a little less challenging or harder for me to accept or easier for me to accept? Second point I want to make on this is that there are consequences for rejecting Jesus because you are choosing to take your chances against God's wrath. See, the flip side of saying we're rejecting his only sacrifice is saying, I would rather face the wrath of God than accept his grace through the sacrifice of Jesus. And maybe that sounds kind of blunt. Maybe you're like, that's not really my mentality. I don't really want to take my chances against God's wrath either. That doesn't sound good. But these points are two sides of the same coin. When you choose to reject the only means of salvation, what you are by default saying is, I am going to take my chances against the wrath of God. I'm going to take my chances and see what happens if I go toe-to-toe with him. And that should be a frightening thing to us. Sometimes we kind of soften this idea of we ought to fear God by talking about how we just want, we want to have this respect for him. It's not that we're like afraid of him, but I think it's both. In the book, in the book of James, we're told that the demons also believe that God is one and they shudder. They tremble in fear. They are terrified of him. When demons met Jesus and they knew they were standing opposed to him, they pleaded for their lives. Jesus sent demons into pigs who would then run off of a cliff. And in a lot of ways, that was like an act of mercy to say, I will send you into these pigs and you can run off the cliff and die with them rather than face me toe to toe. Demons pleaded with Jesus because they were terrified. And yet sometimes our attitude is kind of flippant towards the wrath of God. As if it's not really something that should concern us. Yet I want to remind you again, this this passage is telling us that even those who have accepted Christ, remember that's his audience, that's who he's talking to. He's talking to us. He's talking to believers like us. And he's warning them challenging them to stand firm in their faith and to not back away. I know it was up on the screen earlier, but I had titled this message, Shrinking Back or All In, playing off of language that will be later in this passage. This is a warning to not shrink back, to not defect from the faith. In fact, this is leading into a chapter that's a long list of those who have stood firm in the faith and continued to follow God even when things got difficult. I have a couple of points after that go along with this one. There is torment for those who hear the good news and reject it anyway. 
I said before, if you're here and you feel like you've never really heard the gospel, you've never accepted it, maybe this is the first time. In our country, it's unlikely that you've never heard any of this before, but it happens. There are still plenty of people in our nation who have never really heard what it means to trust Jesus as Savior. But Jesus gave some specific warnings to those who would hear from him and see what he had done and then would still reject him. One of those places is in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is giving a warning to some of those who have heard from him. They have seen the miracles that he has done. Matthew 11:20, 20, he says, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracle, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you it would have remained to this day. Can you imagine standing there and thinking, I'm one of the people of God and I'm gonna get to hear from one of his prophets. And as you're listening, you're like, I don't know if this is the guy I'm gonna follow. I'm not sure I'm buying it. I'm not sure he's the one. And then he calls you out and names these wicked cities from the past who faced the wrath of God and were destroyed as heathens who had rejected God as their king and rejected God's people. And he says, you're worse off than them because if they saw what you saw, if they heard what you heard, they would have repented long ago and been saved. I think some of the torment that we experience in rejecting Jesus is the knowledge that we heard it and were there and chose not to follow him anyway. Some of the torment, I don't think he has to even add into our lives. It's just there. I know I've heard this argument in logic that when you're playing the shell game, when you have three options and you have to pick one, you have to find the ball or find the money under the shell, you pick one and then one gets open to reveal whether or not you made the right choice and cuts it down to 50-50. You pick one shell, they uncover one, show, okay, you you didn't lose out on that one. You haven't lost yet. That logic says you should always take the other shell because the odds are you didn't pick it right the first time when you had one in three odds. And so logically, you shouldn't have it in front of you and you should take your chances on the remaining shell. I will never make that choice. It's, it's decided already. If I am ever in a game where I had to make a choice at the beginning and I've narrowed down my options, I said, do you want to keep what you have or do you want to take the other shell? I'm never going to let it go. I'm taking this one. And I know that's not by most people's standards, the logical argument. I know when you're playing a game like deal or no deal, the chances that out of 26 briefcases full of money, you picked the million dollars on your first guess is highly unlikely. And if they get to the end and they're like, you've either got $5 or a million dollars, do you want to keep your case or take the other one? The reason I will never let go is because I would be tormented forever if I picked the right one and had it right in front of me and then I just gave it away. I could live with the fact that I never had it right to begin with. I could live with the fact that the million dollars was up there and I never touched it. I never picked it and it just happened to be left. But if I grabbed it first and gave it away, 
I would be tormented forever. I would not sleep. I would be frustrated. I would think, how could I have had it right in front of me and let it go? I think some of the torment that we experience in turning away from the faith and rejecting Jesus is if you heard the good news and you heard Jesus and you had seen what he had done in your life or in the life of other people and then said, you know what, I don't want that. I think the pain of coming to realize that you have rejected the one and only Savior is unbearable. It's why God could say, you have nothing left to expect but the fury of God's wrath. Suddenly you realize, I've chosen to reject the only way out. I want to remind us again, this passage is speaking to believers and we should not expect that God's people, his chosen people are exempt from facing judgment from God. Now, this doesn't mean that if you have truly accepted Christ as your savior, and then one day in frustration or as the weight of, your, of following Jesus bears down on you, you think, you know what? I'm just not gonna do it anymore. I'm gonna walk away. This isn't to say that I think you then lose salvation that you had if it was genuine to begin with. For some, maybe it's kind of the test that reveals whether or not you really ever trusted Jesus. But I think there are those who do trust Jesus, they're following him, and then one day it just becomes too much. And they're not sure what to do anymore. They don't, they're mad at God for one reason or another, or they're upset with him and they turn around and they're like, I don't want to keep doing this. God's people frequently throughout the Old Testament turned away from God to serve other gods. It didn't make them any less his chosen people, but he did not hold back in his judgment. They lost their nation. They were taken into captivity. They suffered regularly because of their rejection of God as their king. I don't remember if Zach put all of this in the, uh, in the notes here. In Lamentations 2, I won't be reading the entire chapter, but the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is writing just about the, the pain that Israel is facing, that he is facing as God has withdrawn his blessing from them because they have walked away from God. I'd like to start here in verse three of Lamentations 2. It says, in fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel and he has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming roundabout. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and has slain all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. Remember, these were the chosen people of God. And when they experienced God pulling his blessing away from them, as they turned their back on him, they served idols. They were offering sacrifices to idols. Their kings were being led astray and leading the people astray. And their experience was God has turned his bow to us like we were his enemy. God didn't hold back just because he had chosen them. He didn't hold back just because they were his. 
There were consequences for rejecting him as their king. And I think we will face trouble and trials when we turn away from Jesus and we have to face them alone. Now, I'd like to take a turn in this message though. Because as hard as that part is, I knew that was going to take up a large part of this message. We also see that there's a clear call from the author of Hebrews telling us that we must persevere in our faith. Please turn back into Hebrews if you're not still there, starting in verse 32. It is written, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, that is like after you realize Jesus is your savior and you came to him, it says you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now I know as we're reading that, the first thought isn't, oh man, that sounds so much better than facing God's wrath. Did, men, did any of that really sound good up until maybe the last half a verse or so? Up until that point, it was remember when you first became a believer and you went through trials and suffering and you joyfully accepted having all of your property stripped away and being persecuted and standing alongside of those who were beaten and killed and persecuted for their faith too. Wasn't that great? It doesn't really sound like the most uplifting message right off the bat. The song we were singing earlier, I thought it was funny. They said, this is a new song for us as a church, but it was one of the worship set songs for our fall retreat for our college ministry. The idea of God won't fail. And one of the verses in that song references the one who builds his house on the rock versus the one who builds his house on the sand from the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Saying, the one who hears my words and does them, when the storms and the trials come, his house will stand. But to the one who doesn't, the one who hears my words and ignores them, when the trials come, his house will be like that built on a sand and it will fall. What do those two people have in common? They both heard the commands of Jesus. They both heard it. They both knew what Jesus said, what he told them to do. The difference, and they also both face trials. They both face storms. He didn't say, if you hear my words and do them, you won't face trials in life. He didn't say, if you hear my words and do them, you'll never be persecuted. He didn't say life will be easy. He didn't say, you could just hang back. You don't even have to work. I'm just gonna provide everything. I'm gonna bring it right to you. You can sit on your couch and hang out and it's all good. He's saying the trials will come but you'll be prepared to withstand them. You see, when we set ourselves opposed to Jesus by rejecting him, the hard part is we know that we have withdrawn from the one who promised to keep us strong in trials. And instead, now we've chosen to face them alone. But when we persevere in our faith, when we stand on the word of God and we honor him and his word and we obey his commands, we experience the joy and the fruit we experience the protection and the strength 
that comes from our Lord and Savior. Why do we have to persevere as we see in these verses? Salvation, although it is free, discipleship is costly. I have no doubt, and I don't want you to have any doubt, that salvation is a free gift by God through his grace. But following Jesus costs us something. Following Jesus isn't easy. If you would turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 14. Jesus here, sorry, make sure I'm on my right page. Jesus is speaking to crowds who are gathering around him. Chapter 14, verse 25. It says, large crowds were going along with him and he turned to them and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else when the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus didn't rinse words about what it would cost to follow him. You may remember the story of the rich young ruler who came and said, what do I need to do to follow you? And he says, follow the commandments. The guy says, I did it. I've done it. I've been following the commandments. Jesus takes it a step further and says, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me. At that moment, we see that that man walked away sad. And as Jesus began to explain to his disciples, they said, what about us? We left our homes, we left our families, we left our jobs. We gave away everything. Jesus says that no one who has given up their home, their family, their job, no one who has left everything on the line and followed me will be left, who will be ashamed. No one will be left with nothing. You will be blessed even more than what you gave up. That there will be blessings, in fact, in this life and even greater things in his coming kingdom. Discipleship is costly. Jesus doesn't mince words about it. But he encourages us with the idea that it's worth the cost. What does the author of Hebrews say? You face persecution and suffering. You've visited those who were in prison. Most likely, he didn't just mean they were in prison for your average crime. They were probably the ones who were imprisoned because they followed Jesus. They were arrested, they were thrown in jail, and you spend your time just going to encourage them. You maybe had your home taken away. You lost your family. Your family doesn't want to talk to you anymore because you started following Jesus. And he's saying, remember when you accepted that with joy? Remember when you were going through that and you realized, I'm not alone in this, Jesus is here with me? When you went through trials and tribulation, 
When you went through struggles in your life and you realize, I have a savior, I have in Jesus someone who is by my side no matter what. And so you had joy, not because it was easy, not because you didn't care about the trials, but because it was worth it to be alongside of your savior. We also persevere in our faith because we have confidence in God's faithfulness and in his calling on our lives. I love how in verses 30 and 31, he was just telling us that, yes, not 30 and 31. Sorry, that was the end of my last passage. That was a little bit less uplifting. We're gonna go over to 35 and 36. He says, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For if you have need of endurance, or you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. He's saying God has given you a promise through his son an eternal life in his kingdom and a constant companion through the trials of this life. He's promised to send you a helper, a helper in the Holy Spirit who will equip you and prepare you for the work he has called you to do. He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to come alongside of you and encourage you in your faith and strengthen one another. The ones who will come and visit you and support you and encourage you when you face trials. The ones who you will go to support when they face the same things. And I love when scripture speaks to our confidence that we have in Christ. Sometimes the apostle Paul uses this word hope. And I think we lose sight of how powerful that word is because sometimes we think hope and it's wishful thinking. I hope the bears are a lot better this year than they were last year. It's wishful thinking. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in that. But when Paul talked about hope, he was talking about something that was sure. It was more like this word confidence. He's saying, you know what God is going to do and so you press on. It's not wishful thinking with Jesus. It's not, I really hope that this turns out okay. It's my hope is set in something that is sure and steady and Jesus will not let me down. And so I can persevere. We have confidence because he has given us a calling on our lives. In Romans chapter five, first few verses, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only of this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That hope is confidence, like what we read here in Hebrews. That hope is saying, Jesus is king and he's coming back one day. And I can persevere through this because really, it's brief and momentary in comparison to what God is doing in eternity. Remember when... If you were here last week, Pastor A.J. Reynolds was, had the kids stretch out the tape and he held the one point on the tape and said, this is, like, this is the time that we're suffering. This is the, how long that trial is. And really even that was inadequate by comparison to eternity. Eternity is much longer in comparison to our lives than that pinch point on the tape stretched across this room. In reality, what we are facing here is momentary. 
He's calling us to persevere because though it feels long to us at times, the trials that we face are brief in comparison to his work that he is doing throughout eternity and in his coming kingdom. We persevere because we have confidence in God's faithfulness and what he is going to do through us. Not because I'm so great at handling challenges. Not because I have a strong mind and I won't fall into depression. Not because I'm the one who has the strength to endure, but because he does. And he has promised to be alongside of us in those trials and he has promised us something great on the other side of those trials. I want to remind us with my last point, or my third point here that we are those who go all in for Jesus. Verses 37 through 39 says, For yet in a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I want to encourage you with this today. If you've begun following in Jesus, you are not one who shrinks back. And I don't just say it to encourage you, say try not to be one who shrinks back. You are not one who shrinks back because he is with you. Because he intends to power you through it. Because he intends to guide the way. Can I speak that over you again? Uh, You are not one who shrinks back. You are one who goes all in. Everything is there for Jesus. Nothing is held back. We know that he is going to preserve our souls. We know that he will never leave us or forsake us. So you don't have to fear whether you're going to shrink back in trials because you know what he's going to do through it. You have no need to enter it with fear. Instead, you enter with confidence. When you feel God calling you to do something drastic in your life, You don't need to be afraid of the outcome. We had just had our our fourth son born in May. He just turned two months old a few days ago. Our youngest son we named Abram. And before too long, we'll probably be doing a baby dedication and we'll share a little bit about this as well and kind of the verse that, that led us to this. But at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, before Abraham has his name changed, he is Abram. And God calls him to the land. He says, I want you to leave the land of your fathers and go to the land I will show you. So you'll see next week, as I think it's Jeff is going through chapter 11, said that Abraham was called and he said he didn't know where he was going. He didn't even know where God was leading him yet. God said, pack up your family, pack up your belongings. Your herd. He was a shepherd. He had herds, he had servants. Pack everything up and go. And then I'll show you where you're going to be. When my wife and I came here and we were making the decision to step away from our, the church where we were serving and to seek out a new ministry, we felt little by little like the Lord was calling us into something. And finally we said, I don't know where we're going, but we need to step out in faith and start to go. We started making the decisions. We set our final date at the church and we had no interviews scheduled. And I don't say that to make me look good because honestly, I had no idea what was going to happen. I would not at any point say we made those steps that led us here because we had such great faith. We took those steps, even though it was scary. We took them in confidence because we knew God won't fail. 
because we were sure that this was what he was calling us to do. We were sure it was what he put on our hearts. And when shortly after we moved here, Kayla was pregnant and we didn't really have to think about it much. We knew if we have another boy, his name was going to be Abram to remind us of this time in our life when we felt we were called to step out in faith and just trust in what God was going to do. Kayla's aunt at one point told us, she's like, I've been praying for you. And I felt like I had this, this dream last night about you guys following, uh, following God. And it was just dark. And there was just enough light in front of you to take one more step. And we both laughed and we're like, that's exactly what it feels like. It's exactly what we've been going through. God gave us just enough light to say, I'm leading you that way. We didn't know where we were going to end up. We didn't know the end goal, but we knew that was the next step. And so we just took that one. As you are going all in for Jesus, I want to remind you, that means that you are not to hold anything back. Jesus tells some kind of, or has some kind of scary interactions with a few people. And I say scary because I think of what would my life have been like? What would I have missed if I didn't follow God with that step? And other steps throughout my life, as my wife and I have had times where we felt God was putting something on our heart, what if we didn't follow? What would have happened? At the end of Luke chapter nine, Jesus is addressing some people who have come to him and they say they want to follow him. In my notes, and so what may be come up on the screen is just verses 61 and 62, but I'll back up a little bit. Verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow wherever you go. Jesus' response was, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Say, so, You want to follow me? I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. Do you still want to go? The next person says, or he says to them, follow me. And the man said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. I've read some commentaries that said, likely the man's father wasn't dead yet or he would have already been engaged with the burial process. He knew his father was near death and had no idea when it was gonna happen. And he's saying, let me stay. And Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. It's a radical call, isn't it? But at the same time, it's in line with Jesus had told to his family or to his followers and that they would have to be able to say no to even their families in order to follow him. To another, he said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, we are not called to be those who shrink back, who put our hand to the plow and then say, you know what? Hold on. I'm not ready yet. We're supposed to be those who go all in. Like if you ever watch the poker tournaments and you see somebody at the very end, and it's like they get down to their cards, they're like, this is, this is it. Everything I have, I'm going to win or lose right now. Only with Jesus, we're doing that with our life and saying, Lord, okay, everything I have is yours. Right now, I'm betting everything on you. There's a good friend of mine from in, when we were in Missouri who said, as he was going through this journey of beginning to follow Jesus, there were multiple times I felt like he was so close, like he knew it. He knew Jesus was his savior. 
And I asked him, like, so where are you? And he would say, he's like, I'm confident that this is true. But one of my favorite things he said to me is, he said, I am not going to make this decision until I know I'm all in. Because I think that's what Jesus expects. If I'm not ready to do that, then I'm not ready to say I'm going to follow him. As a pastor in a church, listening to someone who would not yet say that he had accepted Christ and was following him, to have them come out and say, I know I have to be all in if I'm going to do this. The day that we were able to baptize him was exciting, not just because he gave his life to the Lord, but because I knew he wasn't holding anything back. My final point as I close, because I'm already over time and I need to hurry up. But I'm not going to go four hours like the preacher I was telling some of you about earlier. (laughs) We give everything to him because he gave everything for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. It's a passage I love. It. If you ever read the book In His Steps, which was the basis for the What Would Jesus Do bracelets years ago, it tells a story of a pastor encountering this passage and deciding to live radically for his Savior. And as he does so, it begins to change the lives of everyone around him. What Peter says is this, You have been called to this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed." final reason, why do we endure through trials? Why do we give everything to Jesus? It's because we know he gave everything for us. It's not one way. It's not he says, I'm king, you give your life to me. It's I'm king, I'm giving everything for you. Come follow me. How can you not give everything for a king who would do anything for you? Who would give his own life for you? Who would suffer and die for you? You ever wonder how the disciples and the early followers of Jesus could stand there and face persecution and death? It was because they watched Jesus do the same thing for them. They had hope because they saw him come back to life and they said, you know what? I'm going to follow that one. I'm going to do what he did. He did it for me. It's my turn to give it back to him. Not to earn salvation, not because we need to give enough for him to be willing to save us, but because we're following someone who gave everything for us and how could we not give everything to him? There's a a story I read from Pastor uh, Craig Groeschel. He tells a story in his book, Dangerous Prayers. He's talking about praying prayers of faith to really ask God to lead you into his will and his call for your life. He calls them dangerous prayers because it's gonna cost you something. If you get an answer from God, it means you need to follow. And he said he had a man in his church who every, every week he'd go to greet him on the way out the door and the man would say, great sermon, pastor. I just want you to know, whatever the question is, the answer is yes. And then he'd leave. And he said, after a few weeks, he finally got curious and was like, I need to talk to this guy. So the guy comes back and shakes his hand and he says, hey, would you like to come out for coffee with me sometime? Could we talk? He's like, I already told you. No matter the question, the answer is yes, I'll be there. 
And so we sit down and we're having coffee and I ask him like, what is that about? Why is it you say that to me every week? And the man went on to tell his story about how he had a wife and children, a good job, and he lost it all to a drug addiction. His wife left him. He doesn't get to see his kids. He lost his job. His life came to a crashing halt. And he said, and then I met Jesus and he changed me from the inside out. And I serve a Jesus who gave everything for me and I decided from that day on, no matter what he wants me to do, no matter what he asks, the answer will always be yes. And he said, Pastor, I believe that you are in this position because God is using you to shepherd our church. And if you feel led to ask me for help in anything, it's because God has put it on your heart and I trust that it's coming from him. So no matter what you ask of me, the answer will always be yes. We are not those who shrink back. We're all in. Everything we have, no matter what Jesus asks of us, when one of your pastors comes to you, and I'm assuming you trust our pastors, if they say, would you help with this? I think this is important, and the Lord is calling us into this, and I feel like he gave me your name to talk to. Are you ready to say yes? The Lord says, pick up and move to another place because I have something for you, but you don't, aren't gonna find out what it is yet. Are you ready to say yes? If the Lord says, hey, you haven't trusted me yet, but now's the time. Are you ready to say yes? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, that you are a faithful God that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will never let us down, that no matter how hard it is to follow you, Lord, when the cost of following you feels too great, Lord, I pray that we would endure, Lord, that everything we have would still be for you because we are not those who shrink back. We're those who are ready to give everything because you are a God, a King, a Savior who gave everything for us. So Lord, everything we have is yours. Lord, I pray that we would live in that each and every day, that from the moment we wake up to when we lay our head down each night, we would be ready to say yes, no matter what you've called us to, regardless of the question, that we'd be ready to give everything for you. In your name we pray, amen.